Shane by Jack Schaefer, chapters fifteen and sixteen. Father and mother were in the kitchen, almost as I had left them. Mother had hitched her chair close to father's. He was sitting up, his face tired and haggard, the ugly red mark standing out plain along the side of his head. They did not come to meet us. They sat still and watched us move into the doorway. They did not even scold me. Mother reached and pulled me to her and let me crawl into her lap as I had not done for three years or more. Father just stared at Mr. Weir. He could not trust himself to speak first. Your troubles are over, Starrette. Father nodded. You've come to tell me, he said wearily, that he killed Wilson before they got him. I know. He was Shane. Wilson, said Mr. Weir, and Fletcher. Father started. Fletcher, too? By Godfrey, yes. He would do it right. Then father sighed and ran a finger along the bruise on his head. He let me know this was one thing he wanted to handle by himself. I can tell you, Weir, waiting here is the hardest job I ever had. Mr. Weir looked at the bruise. I thought so. Listen, Starrett, there's not a man in town doesn't know you didn't stay here of your own will. And there's damn few that aren't glad it was Shane came into the saloon tonight. The words broke from me. You should have seen him, father. He was, he was, I could not find it at first. He was beautiful, father. And Wilson wouldn't even have hit him if he'd been in practice. He told me so. He told you? The table was banging over as father drove to his feet. He grabbed Mr. Weir by the coat front. My God, man, why didn't you tell me? He's alive? Yes, said Mr. Weir. He's alive, all right. Wilson got to him, but no bullet can kill that man. A puzzled, faraway sort of look flitted across Mr. Weir's face. Sometimes I wonder whether anything ever could. Father was shaking him. Where is he? He's gone, said Mr. Weir. He's gone, alone and unfollowed as he wanted it, out of the valley, and no one knows where. Father's hands dropped. He slumped again into his chair. He picked up his pipe, and it broke in his fingers. He let the pieces fall and stared at them on the floor. He was still staring at them when new footsteps sounded on the porch and a man pushed into our kitchen. It was Chris. His right arm was tight in the sling, his eyes unnaturally bright, and the color high in his face. In his left hand he was carrying a bottle, a bottle of red cherry soda pop. He came straight in and righted the table with the hand holding the bottle. He smacked the bottle on the top boards and seemed startled at the noise he made. He was embarrassed, and he was having trouble with his voice, but he spoke up firmly. I brought that for Bob. I'm a poor substitute, Starrett, but as soon as this arm's healed, I'm asking you to let me work for you. Father's face twisted and his lips moved, but no words came. Mother was the one who said it. Shane would like that, Chris. And still, father said nothing. 
What Chris and Mr. Weir saw as they looked at him must have shown them that nothing they could do or say would help at all. They turned and went out together, walking with long, quick steps. Mother and I sat there watching Father. There was nothing we could do either. This was something he had to wrestle alone. He was so still that he seemed even to have stopped breathing. Then a sudden restlessness hit him, and he was up and pacing aimlessly about. He glared at the walls as if they stifled him and strode out the door into the yard. We heard his steps around the house and heading into the fields, and then we could hear nothing. I do not know how long we sat there. I know that the wick in the lamp burned low and sputtered a while and went out, and the darkness was a relief and a comfort. At last Mother rose, still holding me, the big boy bulk of me, in her arms. I was surprised at the strength in her. She was holding me tightly to her, and she carried me into my little room and helped me undress in the dim shadows of the moonlight through the window. She tucked me in and sat on the edge of the bed, and then, only then, she whispered to me, Now, Bob, tell me everything, just as you saw it happen. I told her, and when I was done, all she said in a soft little murmur was, Thank you. She looked out the window and murmured the words again, and they were not for me and she was still looking out over the land to the great gray mountains when finally I fell asleep. She must have been there the whole night through, for when I woke with a start, the first streaks of dawn were showing through the window, and the bed was warm where she had been. The movement of her leaving must have wakened me. I crept out of bed and peeked into the kitchen. She was standing in the open outside doorway. I fumbled into my clothes and tiptoed through the kitchen to her. She took my hand, and I clung to hers, and it was right that we should be together, and together we should go find Father. We found him out by the corral, by the far end where Shane had added to it. The sun was beginning to rise through the cleft in the mountains across the river, not the brilliant glory of midday, but the fresh and renewed reddish radiance of early morning. Father's arms were folded on the top rail, his head bowed on them. When he turned to face us, he leaned back against the rail as if he needed the support. His eyes were rimmed and a little wild. Marion, I'm sick of the sight of this valley and all that's in it. If I tried to stay here now, my heart wouldn't be in it anymore. I know it's hard on you and the boy but we'll have to pull up stakes and move on. Montana, maybe. I've heard there's good land for the claiming up that way. Mother heard him through. She had let go my hand and stood erect, so angry that her eyes snapped and her chin quivered. But she heard him through. Joe. Joe Starrett. Her voice fairly crackled and was rich with emotion that was more than anger. So you'd run out on Shane, just when he's really here to stay? But Marion, you don't understand. He's gone. He's not gone. He's here, in this place, 
in this place he gave us. He's all around us and in us, and he always will be. She ran to the tall corner post, to the one Shane had set. She beat at it with her hands. Here, Joe, quick, take hold, pull it down. Father stared at her in amazement, but he did as she said. No one could have denied her in that moment. He took hold of the post and pulled at it. He shook his head and braced his feet and strained at it with all his strength. The big muscles of his shoulders and back knotted and bulged till I thought his shirt, too, would shred. Creakings ran along the rails, and the post moved ever so slightly, and the ground at the base showed little cracks fanning out. But the rails held, and the post stood. Father turned from it, beads of sweat breaking on his face, a light creeping up his drawn cheeks. See, Joe? See what I mean? We have roots here now that we can never tear loose. And the morning was in Father's face, shining in his eyes, giving him new color and hope and understanding. I guess that is all there is to tell. The folks in town and the kids at school like to talk about Shane, to spin tales and speculate about him. I never did. Those nights at Grafton's became legends in the valley, and countless details were added as they grew and spread, just as the town, too, grew and spread up the river banks. But I never bothered, no matter how strange the tales became in the constant retelling. He belonged to me, to father and mother and me, and nothing could ever spoil that. For mother was right, he was there. He was there in our place and in us. Whenever I needed him, he was there. I could close my eyes and he would be with me, and I would see him plain and hear again that gentle voice. I would think of him in each of the moments that revealed him to me. I would think of him most vividly in that single flashing instant when he whirled to shoot Fletcher on the balcony at Grafton Saloon. I would see again the power and grace of a coordinate force beautiful beyond comprehension. I would see the man and the weapon wedded in the one indivisible deadliness. I would see the man and the tool, a good man and a good tool, doing what had to be done. And always my mind would go back at the last to that moment when I saw him from the bushes by the roadside, just on the edge of town. I would see him there in the road, tall and terrible in the moonlight, going down to kill or be killed, and stopping to help a stumbling boy and to look out over the land, the lovely land, where that boy had a chance to live out his boyhood and grow straight inside as a man should. And when I would hear the men in town talking among themselves and trying to pin him down to a definite past, I would smile quietly to myself. For a time they inclined to the notion, spurred by the talk of a passing stranger, that he was a certain Shannon, who was famous as a gunman and gambler way down in Arkansas and Texas, and dropped from sight without anyone knowing why or where. When that notion dwindled, others followed, pieced together in turn from scraps of information gleaned from stray travelers. 
but when they talked like that, I simply smiled, because I knew he could have been none of these. He was the man who rode into our little valley out of the heart of the great glowing west, and when his work was done, rode back from whence he had come. And he was Shane.'